like I said, I had to be careful with how I titled this message, considering this week's scripture to remember. But who told you? The line was, who told you you're naked? But the question is, who told you? And this week's scripture to remember took us back to the very first book of the Bible. According to Genesis, man or mankind existed with God in a place of great beauty where they walked and talked together and in person every day as if best friends and neighbors, the true picture of a close relationship. And this was a very close and special relationship that God cherished. It is one that God had hoped to maintain and wishes to restore. When we think about the narrative of Adam and Eve, we often think about the original sin, right? And this morning we're going to, we are, we're going to take that story and view it in the context of the Lenten season of repentance. So from Genesis 3, if you'd like to open your Bible, beginning in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now from this morning's scripture, remember that Mark read, beginning at verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Every time I read the story, I don't catch necessarily that that the blame game, right? But every time I read the story, I am happy and I'm actually comforted to hear how God is depicted as this gentle father seeking out his own children. Where are you? Right? Come here. Where are you? And then he asked a two-part question. Who told you you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Ouch. But notice how he asked a question instead of jumping to the accusation and the judgment, right? I find that interesting since God knew both where the man and woman were and what they had done. There's a similar conversation found in Genesis 4-9 between God and Cain concerning his crime. He said, where's your brother Abel? who gave a similar deflecting answer. Am I my brother's keeper? Perhaps this rhetorical question is one of those teachable moments that occur between a parent and a child that gives the child a chance to confess to and then learn from their own mistakes. There will be no possibility of redemption if the guilty are unwilling to confess their deeds, then or now. Even in his response, Adam did not display the proper repentance. He did because of his he hid because of his nakedness instead of because of the guilt of his disobedience. Listen, it says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. He doesn't say I hid because I was ashamed that I didn't do what you told me to do. I mean, God didn't say, Did you eat the apple from the tree? He said, Did you do what I commanded you not to do? So as we traverse this Lenten season together, one which is to help us prepare to receive the grace afforded to us through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's important that we are humble and honest and aware of exactly the things we should be asking for forgiveness for. How do we do this? 
It may begin with asking ourselves the question that Adam and Cain were asked. Who told you? Who told me? Or how do I know? Who told me what is good and right? How do I know what is wrong and, and even evil? Who told me that I should feel guilt and shame? Or perhaps not feel these things? And who told me what is important to me? In the story of Genesis, shame is explained as the consequences of the guilt of sin. Before human disobedience, there was no shame. In fact, if you go back a chapter to Genesis 2.25, it says Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. But with sin, the man's perspective had changed. His newfound sense of humiliation caused him to cover up before the woman as well as before God. This is a nonverbal indication of this sense of shame, and it was motivated by guilt. This was true guilt arising from a violated conscience. Now, Lent and Easter, the season we're in, it's a time of reflection and repentance and forgiveness. What is the first requirement of repentance? It's the confession. Genuine confession so that the forgiveness may relieve you of the guilt and remove the shame. The image on the screen is the proverbial scene with the devil on one shoulder, right, whispering in the ear and the angel on the other, whispering in the other ear, telling us what is right and what is wrong and, and what we should do, right? I always saw these in cartoons, you know. For generations, this imagery has been used to depict our conscience, our, our inner struggle, or, or even our moral center. But who is it that is actually telling us these things? Or more importantly, who are you believing? Think about that for a minute. Now let's remind ourselves of the real source and definition of good. Well, we know that God is good. The Bible goes to great lengths to make this truth known to us. Just, just pick up a psalm and you have an example of how good God is. And th this isn't too hard for us to grasp, right? It's, it's easy to believe the goodness is a core attribute of God. God is good. It's a bit harder sometimes for us to believe that God is always good right, with the things that go on around us or that happen or that only God is good. But scripture is clear about that as well. First John 1, 5 says, this is the message we've heard from him and proclaim it to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We are all human with all the potential and with all the limitations that humanity gives us. God's way may not always make sense to us or fit what we call good, but we can take confidence and trust that his definition of good is better and, dare I say, more consistent than our own definition of good. God always operates out of his perfect character. God is goodness defined. Theologian A.W. Tozer says, all things as they move toward God are beautiful and they are ugly as they move away from him. Perhaps you think that things are only evil when they hurt others. And theologian John Piper offers a different perspective to this us-focused view. He argues that all evil stems from finding superior satisfaction in anything above God, right? Priorities. Anything that we think is better than God in any way is the definition of evil, according to him. It's an interesting perspective. The evil in hurting anyone is that we're all made in the image of God. Making offense towards another of God's children or even in ourselves is devaluating something that he created. He created as good. He created to be good. So evil is an affront to God and it's his children that, that are doing it. It's an offense because his perfect 
and holy character is what we're attacking when we're attacking many part of his creation, including other people. It's seeing God in all his splendor and deciding that something else is better than that. Even the first sin can be ascribed this way. Adam and Eve, Eve knew God. They knew him personally, right? But chose to seek satisfaction in this fruit anyway. It's more important than what God had said about it. Evil is any action, thought, or intention that values anything over God. A moment ago, I said that shame is explained as the consequence of the guilt of sin. Before human disobedience, there was no shame. But with sin, the man's perspective had chained, changed. And the Apostle Paul offers this warning and defense for you. It's found in Romans 12 too, familiar verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. And it says, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So who should you be listening to? There's your answer. God, the will of God. But what about this image of the, of the devil on one shoulder whispering in your ear while an angel is on the other giving good instructions? Is this, is this a real thing? Evil does exist. The devil does exist. It is very real, as is temptation. But the battle for your soul isn't one being fought against people around you. In fact, every one of us is in the same battle with the same voices, the same thoughts as we're, we're, we're figuring out right from wrong what we should do as we make even the simplest decisions in our life. And the source of the temptation, well, that's never, ever from God. He may test you. He may try you, but he will never tempt you. Your God wants you to succeed. A few verses to consider. Ephesians 6.12 It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. James 1.13, let no one say he is tempted. I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Matthew 15.19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Let's corral our hearts and minds and bind them for the Lord. And last, 1 John 5, 19 through 20. We know that we are children of God, all of us, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. There is hope. So what does the cross mean for us when it comes to good and evil? What is the symbol that once stood for shame and guilt but has been seized and brought to be eternal symbol of freedom from shame. When we see evil in the world, even though we are sometimes the ones that commit these acts through our thoughts and actions and words, we can be tempted to think that God doesn't care for us. He's given up on the world, or he certainly should. But the cross shows that this is not the case. If God didn't love us, if he didn't love you, he never would have come and suffered the way he did. Jesus Christ came in this world, became human, got rid of his invulnerability, became mortal, and suffered with us. That same day, he'd be able to end all suffering without ending us. The cross shows God's great love and mercy for his creation, and that includes you and me and everyone that we can think of. 
since that moment that the relationship between God and man was first broken in the garden, God has been working hard to restore it. The Bible is that story. And the cross is a conspicuous and undeniable show of God's love and commitment to that relationship, your relationship with him. In fact, the plan before creation was that Christ would be the lamb slain for sinners, sinners whose names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's Revelations 13.8. Christ slain for sinners was the plan before human even sinned. Scripture appeals to us repeatedly to turn from evil and follow Jesus. He mourns the godlessness of people and desires that they live a holy life. And if all sin, if we all sin and we all fall short on our own, where's the hope in this? How do we live this holy life? There's a pathway. It's called repentance. It is a theme of this season. This world needs people that are willing to recognize the sin in their own lives, to confess it to the Lord and others, and turn away from it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Not only God watching you, not only those in the heavenly realms watching you, but other people are watching. The world needs more Christians who are honest and humble about our failings and our struggles. The truth is that turning from sin is hard because we love our sin. We do. We enjoy it. We cling to it as if it were an idol, which is that exactly what it is. Though it can never truly give us what we're looking for. But thankfully, we know who can. We can actually enjoy God more than we can enjoy sinning. That's how he designed us. God doesn't expect us to turn from our sins to live a, a life devoid of, of happiness. To give up those things that bring shallow satisfaction. He designed and created us to live an abundant life. He wants us to enjoy that life. That garden that Adam and Eve frolicked in and loved and enjoyed the, the personal presence of God, that was created for everyone. That is the place we desire to return to and the relationship as well. He doesn't want us to not have happiness. He doesn't. He, said he, he knows those things are killing our joy and that only he can give us true happiness. So don't listen to that other voice and be fooled. The devil didn't appear to Eve with horns and a pitchfork, right? It's almost never that blatant, especially to those who recognize. Instead, he entices her with an argument that seems logical and a fruit that looked desirable. Listen again to the passage from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from that tree in the garden? The Bible says that Satan is the father of lies, that he has been lying from the beginning and he hasn't stopped. Satan is still using the same tactics today. How many times have you tried to justify your sin with a logical argument? The devil is constantly trying to twist what God has told us and convince us that evil is good and good is evil and there's a gray line that's very fuzzy in between. That God is evil withholding desirable fruit from you, Right? It is good to take it because you want it. You deserve it. You should have it. Just look at what this has done, the world's standards of what is good and what is acceptable. Society would say, follow your truth. Follow your own truth. God would be cruel to keep things that you want from you. Some have gone so far as to say that God supports some of those things. The familiar tease, whispers, and ears, did God really say not to do that? So how do we know who to listen to and to whom we are listening? First of all, be in the word. 
cling to what God has revealed to us. Ask yourself, did God really say we should do that? Maybe he did. Most people encourage others just to be a good person. Do the right thing. Who gets aside what is right and what is wrong? Our definition of what is good changes often and varies from person to person, situation to situation. But most people would still insist there's a, a way to live a moral life. Where did we get this notion? Morality requires a God. True morality requires the God. As Christians, we would argue that it was placed in our hearts by God, what is right and wrong. In our worldview, there is absolute truth and a clear distinction between good and evil. God's standards don't change and neither does he. And I wanna close with just a few pieces of, of practical advice from scripture. First is, do not withhold good from Proverbs 3, 27 through 28. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back tomorrow and I'll give it to you when you already have it with you. Preacher and evangelist Harry Ironside said, it is not only that sin consists in doing evil, but in not doing the good that we know. Another point, our good deeds have an evangelistic effect, right? Aren't we supposed to be making disciples of all nations, sharing the good news? Your good deeds have this effect. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. You know this, right? A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others and they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Your good deeds have an evangelistic effect. And there'll be times when you'll need to hear this. Let's not become weary in doing good. Galatians 6, 9 through 10. Paul's letter to the Galatians. It says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. You know, we, we get worn out. It becomes, you know, rote or it becomes... Uh, obligatory and we lose the excitement of it and maybe sometimes we don't intend to but we look for the good or, or we look for the harvest and we're like where is it am I making a difference it says in the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up we know this we were created for good works Ephesians 2:10. we are God's handiwork every one of us everyone you know God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Devote yourself to this, Titus 3.8. So this is a trustworthy saying, right? This is that little, you know, preamble that says, pay special attention to this. And I want, to, you, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And we know when we gather to spur one another on to do good things. That's from Hebrews 10. And don't forget to do good. Or another reminder of the book of Hebrews 13, 16. To not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. Remember then, whenever that may be, we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for the good and the bad we've done. Right? But we have an advocate 
right? That's there with us, interceding on behalf and says, I knew them and they knew me. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we've done in the body, whether good or bad. Does that bring you confidence or does that bring you a little fear? Who told you you have anything to fear? You have the chance to do something about that. I want to close with a benediction from the Apostle Paul and then a prayer. Paul writes this in Romans 16, 19 to 20. He says, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's make that our prayer. Heavenly Father, as we are right in the middle of the season of Lent, even though it's a season we know that this commandment to, to really focus on giving and repentance and prayer and, and setting aside those things that we prioritize ahead of you. Lord, even we know that that's a timeless season. We also know that this is a season of specific focus as we prepare to approach that special Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, where we remember and we commemorate that wonderful gift on the cross. The one that took all of our sin, all of our burden and, and nailed it to that cross and then it was buried dead and rose new and fresh and clean and white. Heavenly Father, we know that we are going to have to give an account for everything we've done. We should take confidence in that because of who has, has given us the opportunity to wash ourselves clean. But we are not without responsibility in this. Lord, let us search our own hearts, not with condemnation, but with conviction as we identify the things. So when you say, who told you what is good? We can say, you did. Who told you what is bad and unacceptable? You did, Lord. And I did my best to be obedient. Heavenly Father, we know we fall short. You know we fall short, which is why you've given us the gift of your mercy. And you ask for one thing. If my children will come and humbly pray and ask for forgiveness, then I will forgive. Lord, we make that a part of our prayer this morning as we, during this communion time, think about what those things are so that you can take them from us and give us true forgiveness. So we need to hide no longer. We need to feel no guilt or shame for what we've done, but boldly come to this table and accept the forgiveness and mercy and grace which you so freely offer. It's in your son's name we pray.